Hello, I'm Robin. And I'm Brian. Uh, with Professor Brian Cox. Professor Brian Cox, because he really is one. Uh, well, no, but I had that debate with Alice Roberts recently, and she said that uh, it's a strange sort of, I don't know, affectation, isn't it? That you, you, you get titled uh, as a sort of a trademarky kind of brand thing. And she's got titled as Dr. Mm. Alice Roberts, as we all were before we got made professors. So for some reason, she's always Dr. Alice Roberts. Yeah, because she started her t- TV career as a doctor, yeah. even though now she's a professor. Yeah. Also, someone like Professor Robert Winston. I yeah, never think of Robert Winston as Robert Winston. He's Professor Robert Winston. Yeah. You couldn't introduce him as Robert Winston. You wouldn't want to call him Robert. You have to go, hello, Professor Robert Winston, Lord Robert Winston. Because yeah. he gets very annoyed otherwise. And if you don't call him Professor Robert Winston, Lord Robert Winston, he's Where, all over the shop. Whereas, as you rightly pointed out, if you didn't call me Professor Brian Crock, you wouldn't know. No, no, no. They'd just think that you were a flamboyant hairdresser from the King's Road in the 1960s who'd fallen through a wormhole. Yes. Yeah, that's what I'd imagine. Anyway, this is uh, we're just <laughs> a very long introduction to... Uh, we did a, a, a tour uh, in October, November and December uh, around the UK and also before that uh, in Australia. And this tour continues in uh, May of this year in the UK. And every night we did a Q&A. Oh, and, and, uh, and June in Oslo. Oh, yeah, June in Oslo. The whole of June, hopefully. I love Oslo. Yeah. You know, you, of course I love Oslo. You just think how depressing a lot of the painting is. It's my kind of place. You won't fit in there at all as a 1960s hairdresser. Which particular paintings? The, the, what? Well, Munch, of course, had the a house scream, there. yeah. And, and all of the other, you know, hideous, painful, sometimes slightly misogynistic images that he, uh, he painted. Um, so, and also a lot of people do a nice, um, like, little kind of wooden house in a, in a wintry landscape. I'll take you to the art place. you like it. Well, you might not. There's no experience. I wonder where they got that inspiration from in Oslo, a, win- a wooden house in a wintry landscape. That's the trouble. is when you look out the window and go, what am I going to paint today? That bloody house again. <laughs> uh, so we did a series of uh, Q&As every single night. Uh, we did a Q&A, and we recorded those Q&As, and so some of these Q&As are now going up on... Well, you know they're going to be on the internet because you're listening to it on the internet now. And uh, so every single night we asked the audience uh, what they would like to ask Brian, and during the interval they tweeted us their questions... And here are just a few of those questions. Well, I wouldn't take it for granted that people are actually listening. It could be on in the background. It could be, it could be accidental. If Brian Cox answers a question about theoretical physics, but no one's in the wood to hear it, does it exist? Yeah, philosophy, we'll leave that. Hmm. You're never keen on that. Though I do think physics is like philosophy, really, a lot of it, isn't it? Tom Armstrong yeah, wants to know, do you believe in quarks? Yes, Great. I like it when they're quick. They, uh... they're, they're, I should say what they are. They're, 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 they're the, the smallest objects we know of at the moment. They're the building blocks of protons and neutrons. It could be that they're not the, the fundamental objects. That there could be substructures to them. But the, 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 the size of particle accelerators that we have at the moment, the Large Hadron Collider being the, the biggest example, uh, essentially sets the scale, the microscope power. So as far as we can tell with the LHC, you look into protons, they're very big things, or into neutrons, they're very big things, but you see these things that look point-like, and those are the quarks, and you see them very vividly and clearly, and we understand them. Um, but we, th- they could be, have substructure in them, uh, we don't know. I just say one very quickly, Ernest Rutherford, who discovered the atomic nucleus here in Manchester a century ago or so, um, once said, um, he was asked about there was some civil servant that was bothering him, and he said he's like a point-like particle. He has position, but no magnitude. <laughs> so <that> was, <laughs> it's a very good insult, that. You're, you're point-like. You're, you're a Euclidean point-like. Uh, 
Dawn Sinclair wants to know how long would it take for black holes to absorb all the matter in the universe? Uh, they won't. They, they will, um, the other way around, they, they will, um, you could ask the question, how long will they take to return all their energy to the universe, as we spoke of before? And, and the answer is that the bigger they are, the longer they take to evaporate away because the lower their temperature. And the number that's usually quoted is of order, for the biggest supermassive black holes, of order uh, 10 to the power 100 years or so. So, so it's one with 100 noughts after it years. And if you think the universe is only one with 10 noughts after it years old, now, then um, it's, it's a very, 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 very long time. Um, and this one, uh, is it true if you sell a tape of magnet to a pigeon's head, it will fly around in circles? <laughs> Thank you, Cameron. Uh, I would say that experiment is the way to answer that question. <laughs> so when you go home tonight, then uh, do that. Catch some pigeons, tie magnets to the head, see what happens. It's very funny. <laughs> Um, so the first question is, uh, I can't find, but it was a great question, and I will ask it now, and I'll find out who it was later on, which is, uh, so the Rosetta crash, which of course has been reported in the front page news, uh, certainly the BBC News website, probably not of some of the other newspapers, uh, but uh, what, is that the most rock and roll thing that's <laughs> happened in science in the uh, last decade? Crashing a spacecraft intentionally into a comet. Yeah, the, the, I don't know if you saw that, that Rosetta ended its mission today. Uh, the reason it was there, by the way, comets are interesting because they are um, pristine material from the formation of the solar system. So it's almost like the, 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 the solar system, a deep freeze of image of the material that was present four and a half billion years ago. So they're interested if we want to understand the origins of the solar system. So Rosetta had been around it for two years now. The, the Philae lander had landed on it. But then the, the Rosetta is powered by solar panels, and the comet is on its way uh, out into the darkness, away from the sun. So it would run out of power. So the question was, well, what, what do we do? Do we just let it run out of power? And, but the, the idea that you would get closer and closer and closer, and I don't know if you've, if you've seen, or, or tomorrow you could look at the pictures, that you get pictures from, you know, sort of 10 feet off the surface of the, commentary, uh, of, of the comet. So it's a beautiful idea, because the spacecraft will never be revived again. So to use that last thing to fly it right into the comet, very quite gently, actually, and end the mission that way was a very good idea, and that's what they've done. So there'll be real science data, but the pictures are just... I mean, you've got pictures this far away, you know, as it, as it goes down to the surface. Is that beautiful? So that, that question, by the way, is from JBS, who said he also wants to know on a scale of 1 to 10, in which 10 is Guns and Roses and 1 is D-Ream. So the... Um, <laughs> ah, it's Guns JBS. and Roses, isn't it? Uh, can you explain, and are you a fan, of the Many Worlds interpretation by Hugh Everett? Some of you may have noticed that there were uh, eels playing in the, uh, when you were walking earlier. Uh, he, uh, Mark Everett, of course, uh, of, of the band Eels. His father was Hugh Everett, who came up with The Many Worlds. Are you uh, turning to John Peel now? Oh, there we go. And that was uh, Mark. We do that, actually, as a game. When we're driving around a lot, going distances, we listen to different words and go, that'll make a good Peel band, wouldn't it? That was uh, Quantum uh, Fluctuation there with a new song, uh, Kepler 62. And I have to say, rather a wonderful uh, use of the marimba. Uh, certainly the best thing, <laughs> best thing I've heard this Friday. <laughs> <laughs> so, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. So, um, quantum theory, the first thing to say is it's a uh, hundred years old. It is the theory that tells us how particles behave, how they move and interact. It's a theory that underpins transistors and lasers and all sorts of things. So, so it's a very well established theory. But when you look at the way you calculate things, um, so you calculate essentially probabilities. So quantum theory, the, the only, the re all the weirdness, the so-called weirdness in quantum theory comes from the fact that it says, it essentially says, what is the, given that a particle is here at some instant, 
uh, what is the probability it will be here at a later time? And that's the, the whole sort of basis of the strangeness is that. So, so you might set a particle up in identically um, 100 times, and then you might find that 40% of the time it's here, and 30% it's here, and 20% it's here, so it does different things. And the, the many worlds interpretation is to say, well, actually what happens is that all those possibilities are real. So that the mathematical framework, essentially, of quantum theory is actually real. So that means that there are, essentially, that there's always a, a, if you like, a universe in which everything happens. So every, every, every probability is realized, actually realized. And that's the, and, and it's, it's actually, although it has this kind of strange feel about it, that you need an infinite number of universes to, to explain the theory. Um, what, it, what it does do is remove any additional assumption. It's the simplest interpretation of quantum theory, many physicists would say, that that's actually the way that things are. And then the questions about our experience of the world then become interesting. Why don't we see that? You know, why, why don't we experience this, this quantum multiverse? There's a very good book, actually, by um, Max Tegmark, called, uh, I think it's called the Mathematical Mathemat Universe. Mathematical yeah. Universe, in which he goes into these ideas in some depth. But that's, uh, it's just one of the, the quantum theory, as you say, is it, it, as I say, it's a very mechanistic, it just tells you how particles interact and move. Um, but it has this kind of extra baggage associated. It requires an interpretation. And then that's where the disagreements, and the, the disagreements are never on the, the things you calculate. There's a thing called the shut up and calculate school which is uh, associated with Richard Feynman, the great Nobel Prize-winning physicist. And uh, that's just basically, it doesn't matter what, what, what the reality, you don't have to have a picture. It's telling, it's making predictions that agree with experiment and describing the way that things behave, and that's good enough. And you don't need to bother interpreting the thing. And it's quite comforting as well, isn't it? Because there's a guy down the front there who's got a really bad cough, and it's getting worse and worse. And for a moment I thought, oh, he might be choking. And then I thought, only in this universe. So uh, let's, not, <laughs> let's not worry. Um, the... Uh, this, I'm sorry, you've just gone, I've made it worse by mentioning it. So um, uh, this is from Jude <laughs> Norris, age 14. Uh, Jude would like to know, what would the effects on Earth be if the moon was twice as big or half its size? Uh, twice, so if it was twice as massive, then it would raise, raise larger tides, much bigger tides. Um, and uh, so it would affect the uh, spin rate of the Earth probably, so it were the same distance, but it were more massive. Um, so, so, so you could imagine, depending on how things were set up, so if, if you just doubled the mass of the moon, um, then you would, I think, slow the spin rate of the Earth down. I think you'd, you'd do lengthen our days, I think, uh, off the top of my head. Um, so, so, so yeah. even that's a relief, isn't it? That's moments where he goes, I don't know that one for sure. Well, the thing go, the, good. The, the reason, what I'm thinking is that there's a thing called angular momentum. It's a spin in a system which is conserved, a conserved thing. So, so if you increase the mass of the thing that's going around, then, then that takes more of the spin. So if the spin's going to be conserved, then you have to slow, the, you have to take spin from somewhere. So you'd have to take it from the Earth. So that's what I'm imagining, so you lengthen the day. The, the, moon, the moon is moving further away from the Earth every year, by the way, about four centimetres a year at the moment. And, and that means it is taking more of the spin, which is slowing the days down. So the days were shorter in the past and the moon was closer. So it's the same kind of effect. This is an Good interesting question. one. I think this, one, this is from Kinesi, who would like to know, why are electrons negatively charged? Um... So we, the, there's a <laughs> really good question. The, there, are, there, are, there, are two the, the, there are two kinds of thing, there's matter and antimatter. Um, and so, so every particle has its own antiparticle. And that's actually a consequence of relativity. 
uh, be merged with quantum mechanics. So it's a, it's a consequence of those two theories. That has to be the case. And so there's, a, there's a, a, an antimatter electron called the positron, which has a positive charge equal in amount, but opposite in sign. So actually the definition, there's nothing special about negative and positive, they're just labels. But there is something special about the fact that there's an equal and opposite particle um, called the positron. And you can bring those together and they annihilate into photons. They cancel each other out, essentially. Uh, what are solar flares? That's from Kate in Rowe. They're, um, they're, they're eruptions off the face of the sun. You saw it actually in that film that, that I showed of Mercury passing across the face of the sun, these big um, eruptions, some of which follow, they're, they're caused, um, I think, mainly by the, the magnetic field sort of connecting and reconnecting and throwing material off into space. They can be huge things. And sometimes they can, they can hit Earth, they can damage communication satellites because there are a wind of charged particles rushing past the, the Earth. And the very famous one called the Carrington Flare, which was in a... Um, sounds like a John Peel band again, doesn't it? Carrington Flare. That's Carrington Flare. Yeah. No, what a wonderful um, use of dustbins. Back, back, <laughs> back in the 19th century, I think it was. And, and, and that, if that had hit us today, it would have wiped out many of our power grids and our communication satellites. So there, there have been eruptions in the past which didn't have as much influence on us because we weren't a society that had electricity distribution grids and relied on satellites and communications. So, so there are... Flare, solar flares that can, can hit the Earth. And there was one, the famous one that caused a big blackout on the east coast of New York um, at some point, about 30 or 40 years ago. So they can be quite dangerous, and we monitor them for that reason. Ivorus Carrington Flare is the name you would have if you were a fictional physicist in a 1970s adventure series. <laughs> <It would. laughs> There's only one person who can sort this out, Carrington Flare. Hello. I might can I try this pie? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I might pitch that to the BBC. <laughs> How many got, we got time for one more? Yeah, well, so the, uh, so, well, this is a, a good two. one then. Uh, what have we observed to prove quantum... This is from Paul Smith. What have we observed to prove quantum mechanics, i.e. that a particle can be anywhere until it is observed? Oh, um, the, the, a good example is the way that semiconductors work, so transistors. So that, that really is genuinely uh, quantum behaviour. You need quantum theory to understand what's happening there. And um, I, I think... It, Occasionally people argue, but it's very likely that you, we wouldn't have invented the transistor had we not had quantum theory. Although, you know, that behavior exists whether we have the theory or not. But to understand what's happening. And lasers are another very good practical example. Um, so, but also the, the way that we calculate, um, the way we understand nuclear fusion in the sun, it's an absolutely it requires quantum theory to do that. So quantum theory is the framework uh, th th within which we understand everything at a fundamental level other than gravity. One of, one of the, the big, the great challenges for the, for the younger scientists out there is, uh, in, in the audience now it is to um, get general relativity, which we've talked about a lot, and quantum theory together into a framework. String theory is an, uh, an attempt to do that. And until we can do that, we won't understand what happens at the center of a black hole, and we won't understand what happens at the very, very start of the universe, and indeed there is such a thing, but we'll talk about that in in the second half. Uh, this is from, well, it's, it's, it's from Binkoid's account, but it is actually from Tracy. And I'll just ask one part of this question. Uh, do we know where the center of the universe is? Uh, there isn't one. 
um, the, is it, I actually mentioned in the first half this, this idea, the assumption, which is beautifully tested uh, by the models we have of the cosmos, which fit the data. The assumption is that every point is the same as every other point, this ultimate Copernican principle. There are no special places in the universe. So there's no center. Um, the, uh, in a few minutes, I'll talk about there's a sense in that there's a center in the, in, in the sense that the Earth is at the center of the bit we can see because we can see the same distance in every direction, which is limited, as I'll talk about. But there are, there are no special places. So the universe isn't expanding from something, where the, the Big Bang sort of, and, the, and, it, and it exploded out into a pre-existing universe. The idea is that the universe is stretching. So all the little bits of space are stretching um, on, on large scales by the same amount. And just finally, it's always interesting, o every night well, there is a certain idea that's not heard quite about. Right, different amounts, it depends, the, 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 the stretch oh. changes over time. But you've got to get these things right. Typical, isn't it? You know, yeah. the, the, the expansion rate changes, as well, I showed. I showed the equation. And you justify it with that. Okay, <laughs> so... Uh, Jody uh, asks, is it possible that dark energy is a force of gravity pulling from outside our universe, i.e. another universe? The... Um, the, there are some people that speculate that, that so, so we've got this theory, and I've only mentioned it in, in, in passing, really. Well, I meant general relativity, but the, the, uh, the idea that the, the constituents of the universe are about 5% um, what you might call normal matter, so the stuff we can see shining in all those stars and galaxies, that's about 5% of the matter in the universe. About 25% is in a form that doesn't, um, as, as far as we can tell, doesn't stick together into stars and doesn't shine, and we call that dark matter. And there's very strong evidence for that, including the, the gravitational lensing, the Einstein ring the photograph that I showed you before the break. And as I mentioned, dark energy, the, the evidence being that the universe is accelerating in its expansion. But there are people that try to say, well, that doesn't sound right. So can you build models that would give us the observed behavior of the expansion rate of the universe without having to put all this extra stuff in that when we don't know what form it takes? And th th there are people who try to look at that. And that we'll start right at the end about the possibility of other universes uh, and, and whether they can be arranged such that they can mimic or cause this acceleration expansion. But it's, it, it's very difficult to do, and people have not been able to do it as well in any way as the standard model of cosmology. It's called the Lambda CDM model. Because uh, you're on dark matter, Lizzie Shires also said, what do you think is the most likely candidate for dark matter? Um, to, to guess, most people, I think, or many physicists thought that at the Large Hadron Collider, we would discover a new family of particles. There's a theory called supersymmetry which essentially doubles the number of particles in nature. And uh, it's a very natural theory, uh, theoretically. It's very elegant and very beautiful. And uh, so I think many physicists thought we'd have seen those particles by now. And we haven't yet. We, we may do. The LHC is taking a lot of data at the moment, but we haven't. And so the, 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 sort of the, 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 the form those particles can take is getting narrowed down by the absence of them. In the, in, the, in the experiment. So that means that the, the most common, the most obvious theories have been ruled out. Most of them have been ruled out now. So it's, it's one of the big um, surprises, actually, I think, uh, at LHC, that we haven't seen any of these supersymmetric particles yet. Um, the next one is, uh, this is from Fran. Do you believe that there is life elsewhere in the universe? And again, I suppose, looking at just the, the enormous number of, uh, yeah. of, of stars within our own uh, yeah, I, 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 I mean, it's a guess, of course. We only know that there's life 
on this planet. But as, as I mentioned, the conditions seem to be present across the solar system, never mind the universe. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if we found microbes uh, subsurface on Mars. There's a big um, European Space Agency mission called ExoMars, which, which we're participating in, which is going to, it's a rover that's really designed to, to look for hints of biology that either was present or could still be present on Mars. And then these missions to Jupiter and Saturn. So I wouldn't be surprised at all. Uh, the, the, the question, though, about civilizations and complex life, um, what you find is life begins um, very soon after the Earth forms. But then you've got this whole sway. This is, a, this is about a quarter of the age of the universe, or, or, or uh, even almost a third of the age of the universe, actually. And all you see for all of it, pretty much, is, is single-celled organisms. You get the, the complex cells for the biologists that in the audience. You get the, the, the emergence of the, the eukaryotes, a cell with a nucleus. But nothing, there's no evidence of complex living things, uh, you know, predators and prey and things with, with eyes and legs that can run around and chase things around, until the Cambrian explosion, which is here. So that's about 550, just less, about 520 million years ago, December the 17th in the cosmic calendar. And then in pretty short order, the, the last dinosaur dies on the December the 30th. Um, and then all of human history, actually, is in the last 10 or 20 seconds of, um, of, of New Year's Eve. So everything we've done is just this little square, the last bits, the last seconds of the cosmic calendar. That does but sum up humanity, though, doesn't it? When, when did humanity appear? It's roughly the same time that someone knocks on your door oh, yeah. on New Year's Eve and goes, Hello, I've got a bottle of cider. I know Gavin. Yeah, it's kind of just <laughs> that's, that's what we did oh to yeah, the universe. We're the humans. Oh no! Yeah. they're going to wreck the place. But the point is, with relevance to the question, is that so you go from simple life exists for all of this. You don't get complicated uh, for billions of years. Th uh, essentially, three and a half billion years plus it takes to get anything complicated, and, and four billion years basically to get an intelligent civilization. So the question is, it, does that mean that we were very lucky? To, to, we are very lucky to exist, even though life may be common and popped up as soon as it could. All this time, um, are we, we, we don't have to be very lucky. If we're a factor of three or four lucky, then it, it, the average exceeds the age of the universe. And you could sort of say it like that. So, and then you ask the question, well, of all these star systems, um, do you need stability of a planet and a star and the star system for, for this long, for a third of the age of the universe? Many stars don't live that long. And many stars are not stable over billion-year timescales. And yet, on Earth, we needed that to become an intelligent civilization. So it could be that we are very rare and therefore very valuable in, in a galaxy like the Milky Way. See, I find the depressing thing is the idea that there are, are, are billions of, of intelligent civilizations, but they never coincide. So the best you can imagine is arriving at a planet going, well, there used to be really good stuff here. Here's what? an old book. Well, yeah. it, I mean, it's one of, one of the, there's a, there's a concept called the, um, the, the great filter. Um, so, so one of the answers to the, the, the question, it's called the Fermi paradox, which is, uh, is the idea that all amongst all those stars, so we've had, what, 11 or 12 billion years when life has been possible in the universe, when carbon and oxygen were generated by the first generation of stars. And we've got billions of stars and billions of planets. Uh, 20 billion Earth-like planets is the estimate in the Milky Way galaxy alone from the data from Kepler and other telescopes. 
So why don't we see any civilizations? Why don't we see any hints? And it could be that civilizations, when they reach technological maturity like we have, so you get nuclear weapons, nuclear power, you, you start affecting the, the, the global climate and all those things, it could be that it's just too difficult for a planet to, to make the necessary decisions. It's politics, essentially. You cannot stop. The, the march of technology essentially destroying your civilization because you can't be sensible enough. You can't govern a planet globally, which you have to do. You have to do it if you want to deal with the impact you have on the climate and you want to pre prevent yourselves from having wars that become increasingly destructive as technology advances. So it's quite a, a miserable thought that it could be that we, you know, this is like Donald Trump and things like that that you see. These things ultimately are inevitable and end up destroying civilization before they have chance to communicate. <laughs> anyway, so uh, <laughs> Tasha Dillon uh, asks, uh, this really comes on from, from what you've just been <laughs> saying, when looking at exoplanets, why assume that organisms rely on water uh, as they do on Earth? Could there be an alternative? So, it's a, the, Most biologists, I think, that certainly that I talk to, think that um, for the spontaneous generation of life, so what, what you need is complex carbon chem chemistry to happen. And, and it does. I mean, we see amino acids and all these things out there, out there in the universe on comets. Like the, the, the Rosetta mis mission is, has just ended on the, on the comet. We see, we see complex carbon compounds on those things. But to, for carbon chemistry to get very complicated, water is the ideal solvent. Um, I've, I've heard it said that, that biology, we won't understand biology until we understand water. Water is a very complex substance and very common in the universe, actually. Hydrogen and oxygen, uh, hydrogen is the most common element in the universe. Oxygen is the uh, third or fourth most common with carbon and helium. Um, so so the, the idea that you need water is really a statement of chemistry that ke chemistry gets complicated in that solvent. It's like a framework, a structure around which proteins orientate themselves and things like that. So that's why people think that you need water, at least for the origin of life. I mean, you, you could imagine that we could build you know, intelligent computers that are silicon-based and send them off into the universe, and so life might become silicon-based eventually, but it would need to be created by carbon-based living things, which probably need water. Um, Richard Craven would like to know, did Schrodinger have any other pets? The, uh, <laughs> I don't think he even had a cat, did he? Very, very flamboyant man. If you ever get a chance, was, have a look at those, those brilliant images where you have people like Paul Dirac and Schrodinger in the same picture, and they look very different. Yes, yeah, Schrodinger, was, he wrote a brilliant book, actually, going back to the previous question, called What is Life, mm. which is when he was in Dublin in the, in the 19 late 1930s, early 1940s, which is a brilliant book, which, which actually almost predicted, it was one of the motivations that led Crick and Watson to discover DNA. So it's a, it's a wonderful book. He was a polymath, Schrodinger. Very interesting, man. And uh, Henry Ballantyne would like to know, what's going to destroy the Earth first, Andromeda crashing uh, or the sun exploding? The, the as sun in Andromeda, sorry, I should explain, yeah, crashing into Milky Way. No, the, the sun actually, way before it, 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 it expands into a red giant, it gets too hot. Um, for, for life to exist on the surface of Earth. So it's, it's not long, actually. It was astronomy. So it's a billion and a something years or something like that. But it's not the four or five billion years that the sun's got left. It gets too hot on Earth before that. I think the number's about a billion or a billion and a half years, actually. So the sun causes us problems first. <laughs> Um, the, uh, and the final question, do you this is a great one for you to final one because this will wrap it up fast. Uh, do you believe uh, tachyons exist and does that imply time travel is possible? 
So wrap that up in 30 seconds. Well, I can tell you what tachyons are. So that they're, they're a hypothetical particle that travel faster than light. Um, um, it, I think it is mathematically possible in relativity to have things that go faster than light, uh, but they can never get slower, and things that go slower can never get faster. And it's, so, um, but it's all, I, I don't think they do. If you could um, go faster than light, then it's true that you can, you can essentially build a time machine. You can, you can signal into the past with... If, if you can send a signal faster than the speed of light. And that's due to the, the, the geometry of space-time itself. Um, so that's why so one, of, one of the ways you can build relativity is to demand that in this theory of space and time, so you think of it, if you're thinking of time as a dimension like space, you might say, why don't we have freedom of movement through time like we have freedom of movement through space? And um, why can't, you know, we can go to, to London and back again. Uh, London doesn't cease to exist when we leave it and, and we have freedom to go back as many times as we want. Why can't we go back to events in our past? Why don't we have the freedom to do that? And you do have a bit of freedom to, as, as you, to move through space time, uh, uh, move through time and space at slightly different rates. That's what's called time dilation, the fact that moving clocks run slow. Uh, but you don't have complete freedom. And that, that speed of light is almost a protection built into the geometry that stops you having that freedom to wander into the past. Uh, Emma, uh, who is in the front row, I believe, is nine years old and wants to know about, in fact, we've already replied via Twitter, but uh, about um, female scientists that she should Oh, I did. Uh, I, I, tweeted, I tweeted to you, actually, I, with three of my friends. Uh, Astro Katie on Twitter is very good. Uh, Carolyn Porco, who actually, Carolyn was the, uh, or still is actually, runs the imaging system on Cassini. So those photographs that you saw of Saturn and Enceladus, um, uh, Carolyn was, was sort of instrumental in taking those photographs. And, and I, I said Alice Roberts as well, who's fantastic. And also, if you look at anything, Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who's a, a, oh yeah. a very interesting human, pretty much discovered, really, pulsars. And uh, I went to ask her, I said, because she does a lot of stuff about, you know, women in science and how to, to continue to improve that situation. And she said when she first, she basically discovered pulsars, but didn't get the Nobel Prize. It went to some old men instead. And uh, she said, she, I said, were you ever asked anything by the press when that happened? She went, not really. She said, the Sun were the only newspaper that asked me anything. And their one question was, are you taller than Princess Margaret? So, um, <laughs> <laughs> and Chloe, the final question, just a quick one. Uh, if both of you could go back in time and befriend any scientist who would it be and why and I will say Charles Darwin because I just I love Charles Darwin I love the poetry of his language and I love the tenacity of uh, the way that he followed an idea I think I mean, it's, it's kind of almost like a boring answer but I think I would have loved to meet Einstein because I think that I, I tried to say that Einstein thought in a very simple way initially about science and, and the scientists that I get on with and, and uh, people who really try to make it as simple as possible. And that, that's really what Einstein did. It was very simple thoughts, and, and that was his genius. Brian Cox, uh, I'm going to leave, and you're now going to do that bit which gives everyone a headache afterwards. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so, oh, you could, you're, you're it's a really good bit, though. Thanks for listening. All episodes will be available at cosmicshambles.com slash Brian Cox QNA. And for more yeah, so that's a rubbish URL, isn't it? Why? What's wrong with that? Q and well you'd misspell that all the time. Q N A Q N A. Yeah, like question and answer. Brian Cox Q N A. Yeah, question and Not answer. Q and A. No. Oh. Just no, that would be rubbish. Just Q and Q A, yeah. Q Yeah, because very often uh, when people write down question and answer, when your butler does that, when he's writing out the list of things you have to do, they put Q and A. That means question and answer. Ah.
Yeah, I know. It's interesting. You do physics well, but linguistics and abbreviations, bloody rubbish. He has a very beautiful fountain pen, my butler. He does, doesn't he? And it is actually attached to one of your fountains as well. So check out uh, CosmicShambles.com where you'll find more podcasts, uh, documentaries, etc. And if you'd like to know more about the Arena Tour in May, uh, you can get those at BrianCoxLive.co.uk. And that should also soon have some information uh, about dates in Norway as well. I like that one more, Brian Cox Life. There's more me in it. Look at that lovely star. Look at the stars. Thanks for listening. I enjoyed touring with Professor Brian Cox in Australia so much last August that I am going to be back in Australia and also adding New Zealand, Wellington, Christchurch and Auckland. And I'm bringing along with me Helen Chersky, Matt Parker, Lucy Green and Josie Long and a whole host of musicians and comedians for our Cosmic Shambles live tour. If you want to know more about that, go to CosmicShamblesLive.com or just CosmicShambles.com. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.